so down the road. We're taking our Bibles tonight and going to the Gospel of Matthew once again, Matthew chapter 5. Thank you so much for your faithfulness throughout this week. We understand a meeting like this doesn't happen by accident. Many people working behind the scenes to allow us to gather together. So we appreciate Pastor's kindness in extending the invitation to us. And kind of in lieu of Dad being here, we are glad for Mom's uh, continued recovery. And we appreciate and covet your prayers for the days before her as uh, there's still some volatility that's going on in the midst of this. But we're thankful for good progress that's going on there. We appreciate you being here night after night. Thank you to those that have helped with the meals and cleaning up and uh, with the music and the preparation for all of those things and the guys in the sound booth and the ushers and greeters and the teen activity afterwards and children's workers. It, there's a lot of people that uh, are put into practice here and uh, working alongside to allow this to happen. It's been a privilege to join forces with you for these days. We appreciate your prayers as God brings us to mind. Uh, we, we do call Indianapolis home. But uh, the Lord allows us to travel, and the church has been kind to allow us to take meetings like this one. So a little later this month, I'll be at a Christian camp up in northern Wisconsin in July. We're over in New England for a camp, uh, down in South Carolina for a meeting in August, and elsewhere this fall, kind of about once a month or so we're out and about. So as God brings us to mind, we would certainly appreciate your prayers as we travel about sharing the good news that Jesus saves. We've got our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. Let's stand, please, if you would, out of respect for God's word. Matthew 5. Really, we're looking at the illustration that Jesus gives in the midst of his sermon. We're beginning our reading in verse number 13. Jesus says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're preaching on salt and light living. I guess you could subtitle it, Pass the Salt and Turn on the Light, all right? That's what we're looking at tonight. You can be seated, and we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together once again this evening as we look into His Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the work that You have been doing and desire to continue to do. Thank You for the opportunity to join forces with our friends in this place. We pray that You'll continue to use each of us to bring You great glory, for You are worthy to receive that glory and honor and praise as the men have just sung. May others around us, even in the city of Indianapolis, even on the south side here, may they see our good works, and in turn, may they glorify you, our Father, which is in heaven. Lord, there may be one that's joined us tonight in this final service of the revival meetings, and they don't have a Bible certainty that heaven will be their eternal home. Lord, may they recognize Jesus, who is the light of the world, and may by faith they allow that light to shine in their hearts, and may they be born again tonight. May we as believers... Understand how we can be what you've called us to be, salt and light, and may we live that way for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a cold, foggy October Sunday morning in 1864 when one of the worst battles of the Civil War began. Some 2,500 Confederate soldiers collided with another 4,500 Union soldiers near a small town in the southwest corner of Virginia. The primary objective of this particularly bloody black battle was to acquire and control a very valuable commodity during the war. No, it wasn't gold, silver, diamonds. It wasn't even so much about 
the strategy of having that particular piece of land, this battle was fought over a mineral, salt. Did you realize that historians claim that more battles have been fought over salt through the centuries than actually over gold? The town of Saltville, Virginia was extremely important to the Confederacy during the Civil War because salt was the primary method of their preserving food, and Saltville was the South's only significant source of salt. So the Confederacy wanted to hold Saltville while the Union wanted to capture it. On that fateful October day in 1864, some 500 men would lose their lives in a conflict specifically over who controlled the salt mine. Isn't it interesting that the Lord uses salt to illustrate the influence that we as believers should have on the society, on the world that's around us. We know these verses. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Of course, we looked even last night in Matthew 6, and we understand that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 record the greatest message ever preached, Jesus' sermon on the mount. Our Savior is speaking to His followers about the kingdom of heaven and kingdom living. And as He introduces His message, He He preaches on the characteristics of those that are kingdom citizens. We call those the Beatitudes. Nine times the Lord would say that those that know Him as their Savior, those that are part of the kingdom of God, are blessed. You know what that word blessed means? It means to be supremely blessed, happy, or fortunate. And friends, we are very fortunate to be called the children of God. We anticipate and look forward to that day when we'll be not only redeemed on this earth, but stand before Him glorified eternally to be in heaven with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there's a reason that God has left us here on this earth. If it was only simply to take us to heaven, then why didn't as soon as we trusted Christ as our Savior, why didn't He immediately take us to glory? He's left us here for a reason, and I think our text here tonight helps us understand why He's done that. You see, God's design and His desire is that each of us, as His children, would be salt and light. Through Jesus' illustration comes great illumination and also instruction about our function as kingdom citizens in a secular society. These symbols of salt and light, they refer to the preserving influence that a believer is to have in the world around us by showing and sharing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salt seems to speak of our character as believers, the inward work of God. Light seems to speak of our conduct, the outward work of God through us. So we'll learn from our text tonight that as a Christian, we're to be a positive spiritual influence on the world around us for the glory of God. You and I are to be a positive spiritual influence on the world around us for the glory of God. From these familiar verses... I want us to see three truths about our function as salt and light. Let's begin by noticing the worth of salt and light. Now, in our economy, we determine something's value in the marketplace, usually based on a simple law called supply and demand. So if supply is limited and demand is great, what does that do to the value of the product? It skyrockets, right? I don't know if you've traced what's going on even in the housing market around here. It's gone kind of nuts, and uh, they're selling rather quickly. We've had a couple of guys on our staff that have recently joined us, and 
They're trying to get into homes and had to get on it right away and even ask, sometimes above asking price just to be able to acquire one. Supply and demand. Now, if it flips the other way and there's not much demand and there's a whole lot of stock, well, <laughs> you're kind of stuck with it. You can buy it bottom dollar. That's why in the summertime you can buy all the winter clothes you want. Nobody wants them right now, okay? Uh, they're very inexpensive at this point. Supply and demand. You know, the same is true in Jesus' analogy here of salt and light. He wants us to understand that there's a great demand for both salt and light. The ancients of Jesus' time knew their value. The Romans would say nothing is more useful than salt and light. In fact, the Roman soldiers were often paid in salt money. We get the term salary from that. And who doesn't like a salary, right? Okay. And sometimes if somebody's not really pulling their weight in the workforce, we might say they're not worth their salt. Where do you think that came from? It came from being paid with salt. It had great value. The Greeks understood that light, in their mind, was divine. Even the Jews on Jesus' day were told in the Mosaic Law that any time they brought an offering, each of those offerings were to contain salt. It was very valuable in Jesus' day. It would be kind of like Jesus looking at you and me today and saying, you're the gold of the universe. You're the diamond of this planet. And he wanted them to understand the great demand for salt and light. Now, some in his audience, his very own disciples, understood the work of salt. We'll get there more in a moment. But they were fishermen by trade. And they knew that salt had value to them because as they pulled those fish in from the sea, before they could get them to market, they would spoil and go bad, so they had to pack them with salt. So his analogy of salt and light presupposes some things. There's a demand for salt. Why? Well, it points to the fact that our society, our world, is in a state of spiritual decay. He says you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. When he speaks of the earth and the world, he's not talking about the globe, the planet, the trees, the dirt. He's speaking about humanity and mankind. You know, when God created, he looked down and saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. In fact, he pronounced it very good. And yet, because of man's rebellion against God and choosing to disobey the one law, the one rule that God has established, wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, sin, entered the world in death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose in rebellion to disobey God, and that sin nature has been passed down all the way to you and to me and to our children, and our sin is a, an offense to a holy, righteous God. You know, it didn't take but one generation removed from the garden, that perfect environment that God had created, and you can watch the downward spiral of sin very quickly, can you not? For you'll see brother murdering brother as Cain kills Abel. You read a few chapters further in the book of Genesis, you come to chapter 6, and you'll find that there God determines He's going to wipe out the earth's population because their heart is constantly on wickedness, it's filled with violence, and He determines to send a worldwide flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We go a few chapters even after the worldwide flood, and only eight souls that are saved, Noah and his wife, their sons, and their three wives, and yet a few generations later, God has to come down to see the idolatry of man's heart in the Tower of Babel, and He has to confound and confuse the languages, once again in, in judgment based on the sinfulness of man's heart. We go on further in Genesis, and we see the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can see this over and over throughout the pages of Scripture, 
In fact, if that's not enough, all you again have to do is turn on the evening news, and there's plenty of evidence even today of the downward spiral and the spiritual decay of mankind. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus would tell us in his word through the pen of the Apostle Paul, in the last days, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Jesus would say, as it was in the days of Noah, those weren't pleasant days, so it shall be in the coming, in the days of the coming of the Son of the Man shall be. This great demand for salt demonstrates the spiritual decay, but the great demand for light demonstrates the need for, that there's spiritual darkness in our land. In fact, modern society might brag about enlightenment, and certainly we can see advancements in education, in technology, in the field of medicine, and yet there's still moral and spiritual darkness that continues to spread. The world is blinded by sin and by Satan. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, in whom the God of this world, that's speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. There's great demand for salt and light. That gives it value. The supply is limited, the demand is great, but he goes on not only to point out that the demand is great, but the supply is limited. He says in verse 13, ye are the salt of the earth. In verse 14 he says, ye are the light of the world. Did you realize when he says that, those are statements of fact. In other words, being salt and light as a Christian is not an option for us. Jesus didn't say you can be salt and light. He didn't say you ought to be salt and light. He said you are salt and light. You realize as a Christian, it's part of our nature of the believer to be what Jesus has described us as, salt and light. The question is, how effective are we as salt and light? In fact, Jesus even uses the emphatic statements here when he says, literally, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Did you realize that you may be the only witness that someone ever receives? You may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Yes, the demand is great, the supply is limited, but not only does Jesus talk to us about the worth of salt and light, but he talks to us secondly about the work of salt and light. How is it that we're supposed to function in society? What's the work of salt? What's the work of light? As Jesus would describe us here in Matthew chapter 5. Well, he tells us that ye are the salt of the earth. We understand a little bit about salt. Probably what comes to mind mostly is table salt. You know, perhaps you dumped a little bit of that on something you were eating tonight. We use that often to season things. It brings out the flavor of the meat or the vegetables that we might be eating. You say, yeah, and it gives you high blood pressure too if you eat too much of it. I understand. There's many different functions for salt today. I remember when we moved here from South Carolina and uh, we, the Lord allowed us to purchase a home. I, I, I went out and washed the car one day and when I got done and it dried, it looked worse when I got done with it than it did when I started. And I thought, what in the world just happened? The reason was I hadn't gone down and filled up the, uh, the water softener uh, deal downstairs in the basement there so it could filter the water. That hard water leaves spots on the dishes, on the car. So you learn what happens. You've got to carry those 40 and 50 pound bags down to the basement and dump it into that, that, that salt brine thing and allow it to cleanse the water to soften it so that you can enjoy clean dishes and the soap actually comes off you when you try to take a shower or when you get in there. And uh, it has a purpose that way. 
when the winter rolls around. We're glad for those that go out before us and plow the roads, and often they'll treat it with salt. Why? It removes the snow and the ice. Well, in Bible times, there were various functions for salt as well. And different people have called to, called to mind different ideas of what Jesus may have been speaking about here when he says, you're the salt of the earth. Some have pointed out that salt is white in color, which speaks of purity, that the believer ought to be pure and holy and distinct. That's good, I think. That's proper and right, but I don't think that was Jesus' main point when he said, you're the salt of the earth. Some have pointed out that salt adds flavor, it adds zest to life. So the believer ought to be hardworking and diligent and courteous and kind. They ought to have the joy of the Lord of their strength. They ought not look like they got baptized in lemon juice, right? Okay, there's some good thoughts there, but I still, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. Some point to the fact that salt was used to uh, cleanse wounds. In fact, it would sting and it would irritate. So the believer ought to be one that convicts others when they're living in sin and they ought to be have that type of, of ministry and convicting hearts. Certainly our life ought to be a testimony. He's going to say later they might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But again, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind here. Some say, well, salt makes you thirsty. Now look, I, some of you may, may I, I grew up in the South. I know we're in the south side of Indianapolis, but how many of you have ever eaten country ham? Can I see your hands? You know what country ham is. Okay, great. You, you, you know what happens if you eat country ham for breakfast? What do you want the rest of the day? You want something to drink. You want some water. Why? That salt makes you thirsty. They used to say you can't, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Well, then they, then they followed up with saying, but you can salt its oats, right? It makes it thirsty. So some would point out the Christian ought to be a salty saint. He ought to make others thirsty for the water of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's good. There's some good thoughts there. But still, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. He said, well, what did he have in mind? Well, I think the primary purpose, the primary use, the primary thought of Jesus' hearers in that day when he said, you're the salt of the earth, they would have understood that salt was primarily used as a preservative. They didn't have the refrigeration systems like we have today. So to keep things from spoiling, to retard that decay, they had to use salt. I think that's what Jesus is pointing to when he says, as believers, we're to be the salt of the earth. So what's the work of salt? We might say it this way. It's to restrain corruption. Those disciples would have been intimately familiar with this function of salt. Many of them fishermen, and they had to salt down those fish to get them to the market so they didn't spoil that way. Salt, in order to be a preservative, actually has to come in contact with that which is supposed to preserve. You know, often I think as Christians, we, we don't recognize that we don't do a whole lot of good as salt in a salt shaker. You actually have to be dispensed if you're going to do any good and function as you ought as salt and light. Now, we ought to rightly separate from the world. In other words, God has put us in this world, but we're not to be of this world. But some have taken that to think that means isolation from sinners, that we're not to have anything to do with unsaved, the unregenerate, those that are without Jesus Christ. But you know, even our Savior doesn't model that for us. For Jesus himself was one who was called a friend of publicans and sinners. So Jesus is not calling us just to isolation, to remove ourselves completely from ever rubbing shoulders with those that are without the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as functioning as salt, he's calling us not to isolation, 
but to being in a place while we're distinct and different, but we are to help restrain corruption around us. You can't do that unless you come in contact with those that are without the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I be the type of salt that God really wants me to be? Well, the answer is you practice what he's already said in chapter 5 and what we call the Beatitudes. When you live out those nine characteristics of kingdom citizens, it makes you the right type of salt. He says that we're to live with an attitude of humility, not an attitude of pride. He says as his followers, we're to have a broken heart over our sin, not living as one that would mock sin. He said we're to walk through life with an attitude of meekness, not with just unrestrained power as many in our world would do. He says we're to have an appetite for the spiritual, not just seeking after the material. He said we're blessed are the merciful as compared to the unmerciful. You look in the world around us and they'll call it a dog-eat-dog world. That's not the way the believer is supposed to live life. We're supposed to be distinct. He says we ought to live in purity as opposed to impurity. He says we're supposed to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. He says we're supposed to respond with an attitude of joy even when we're done wrong rather than get bitter and angry and talk about our rights, he says when you live counterculturally, all of a sudden you become very salty salt. And you can have an influence in righteous living on those that are around you. So the kingdom citizen prevents and confronts corruption in this world. How? By being involved in the lives of those that are around us. By interacting with our neighbors. By volunteering in the schools. By getting involved, can I say it, even in politics in the right way, in community events, it's our God-given assignment as salt to get out there, outside of the salt shaker, and rub shoulders with those that don't know Christ as their Savior. He says you're salt, you're to restrain corruption. But then he says you're light. What's the work of light? Well, I like to think of it this way. As salt, we're to restrain corruption. As light, we're to reveal Christ. He says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. you know what light does? It makes reality and truth visible. It dispels darkness. You ever tried to get dressed in the dark? Maybe you walked out into the light and realized, oops, got one black sock, one blue sock on. You ever done that? Maybe some of you ladies tried to put, up, put on some makeup in a dimly lit room and you walked outside and went, missed, right? Guys tried to shave and got out there and went, uh-oh, <laughs> Didn't quite do so well. Light brings to reality certain things. Jesus said, you, you alone are the light of the world. But wait a minute. Here in Matthew 5, he says this, but in John 8, he's going to declare, I am the light of the world. So how do we reconcile these things? How is it that Jesus himself is the light of the world, and yet he calls you and me the light of the world? Well, he would go on in John 9 and verse 5 to say, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Our Savior has ascended and is seated at the, the right hand of the Father, but He's left us here and He's assigned us to be salt and light. He is the source of light. Ours is a reflected light. It would be like He being the sun and we being the moon. We have no light of our own. It's a reflected light. It's allowing the light of Jesus Christ to be shined through our lives. We're to stand boldly and shine brightly. Why? He says in verse 16, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know the ultimate goal of being salt and light is to bring honor and glory and praise to our Heavenly Father. 
In fact, he says that they may see your good works. That word good literally means beautiful, attractive works. Do you realize that when we shine our light before others by living a righteous life, we're making visible the character of the invisible God. And that is a beautiful and an attractive thing. Have you noticed as the summer comes upon us here that the bugs are back out? You notice that? Took the dog out the other night, turned on the back porch light. And when you're coming back up, you're trying to real quick open the door, run inside, shut the door. Why? Those bugs gather around that light, and they'd love to get inside and go after every other light in the house. There's something about light that attracts those insects. Now, there's some of them, when you turn the light on, they scramble and try to find darkness. (laughs) But there's a number of them that that light draws them to it. You know, as a believer, as we allow the light of Christ to shine through us, certainly there may be some that scramble for the darkness in the corners, but it ought to be such to where it attracts others, not just to ourselves, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. That they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. It ought to attract the lost, and the purpose ought to be to adore the Lord. You know, all the glory goes to Him. You don't compliment salt. You don't put it on your meal and say, boy, that's some really good salt. No. You put the salt on the meal and you say, that's a really good steak. Man, that's some really good vegetables. You had some watermelon, you used to salt the watermelon, you know, it kind of makes that stuff, uh, the taste even pop in your mouth a little bit more. You don't compliment the salt, you compliment the meal and the cook that made the meal. You don't compliment a light. You don't look at a light bulb and say, wow, what a beautiful light bulb. Yeah, that usually cross your mind. You're usually looking at that which it is illuminating, the, the, maybe the picture or the portrait, and as you gaze at that, you're drawn to it and you think about the artist. So it is as salt and light. We're not just pointing people to ourselves. Rather, we're supposed to help them to taste and see that the Lord is good. We're supposed to allow our light to shine that we might illumine the path so that they too can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. The worth of salt and light. There's great demand, limited supply. The work of salt and light. As salt, we're to restrain corruption. As light, we're to reflect Christ. But finally tonight, I want you to notice the warning that the Lord gives to salt and light. Jesus warns us as His followers that we're to be a positive spiritual influence on the society for the glory of God, and yet He gives us a word of admonition and warning here. He says in verse number 13, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. To salt, he tells us, don't be contaminated. He says, if the salt has lost its savor, what good is it? It's literally good for nothing. He says, don't lose your saltiness. Now, I understand, according to chemistry, that salt in its purest form actually doesn't deteriorate. But much of the salt that would have been used in Jesus' day was usually pulled out of the Dead Sea. And that salt could certainly be adulterated. It could be contaminated. It became tasteless and worthless. It became good for nothing. I read that years ago there was a merchant from Sidon that had a great quantity of salt that he bought. They'd been pulled out of the marshes of Cyprus, enough evidently to supply the region for months on end, but he decided he would try to cheat the government out of the appropriate taxes. 
So he rented some homes up in the mountains, and he took all that salt, and he put it into 65 different houses up in the mountains. The problem was all of those homes had earthen floors. And over time, before he could sell it off and get his profit back, that earthen floor had contaminated and so corrupted the salt that it had lost its saltiness. Mounds of it had to be thrown out into the streets, and it was literally, literally trodden under the foot of men. You know, Jesus warns us not to lose our saltiness. Why? He says, if you do, you become good for nothing. That's an interesting phrase. It literally carries the idea of becoming dull. It carries the idea of playing the part of a fool. Did you know as a believer that when the world influences us rather than us influencing the world, we're actually playing the part of a fool? We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And when we are conformed to this world, it hinders our mission. We become good-for-nothing Christians. A little boy was on his way to church, and he asked his mom, Hey, Mom. If I sit real still and quiet at church today, would you give me a dollar on the way home? Your mother said, well, son, I'll think about that. I tell you what, why don't you be, uh, why, why, why don't you be good for nothing like your father, okay? <laughs> you know, sometimes there's a lot of good for nothing Christians. Yes, they've been saved, they've been called to be sold, and yet they become so contaminated by the world around them that there's no distinction that is there. You know, one of the greatest tragedies in Christianity is when the world does more harm to us than we do good in the world. Jesus is warning us, avoid impurity, avoid the pollution of the world. Worldliness as a Christian makes you worthless, but holiness makes you priceless. You know, the worst thing that could happen to a Christian is not to lose his wealth or his job or his health or even his life for the cause of Christ. One of the worst tragedies that can happen is when we lose our testimony because when we lose that before others that don't know Christ, we become a good-for-nothing Christian. He says, avoid worldliness. Don't become contaminated. But to light, he says in verse number 15, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. He gives a light to all that are in the house. To salt, he says, don't be contaminated. To light, he says, don't be concealed. You know, a concealed light is a useless, worthless, wasted light. I remember growing up, and uh, sometimes I'd, I'd leave the light on in my room. That was a no-no around our house. Dad would come around, usually hit the lights, and let us know about that, you know. Sometimes I'd only be gone for a few seconds and back, and the light was already off in the room. I thought, why in the world? I was just leaving for a minute. Now as a parent, guess what I do? Who left the light on, you know, cutting them all off? They're coming up from the basement. Turn the light off, kids. The other day at our, at our church, the, the power went out. And... Uh, it, we, we found out it was going to be hours before it was going to be back on, so we kind of packed up and went some other place where we could get a power and uh, mobility and be able to get some things done. And I came back in the next morning, and I opened my office door, and the light was on, and I went, oh, yeah. Since the power was off, it didn't remind me to turn the light switch off, so I thought, well, the power company, I guess they made their money back overnight while this thing was in here burning. It's kind of frustrating. It's worthless. It's useless, right? It doesn't do any good to turn the light on the closet, shut the closet door, and nobody's there to be able to see anything it becomes a worthless wasted thing jesus is telling us as a christian the light of jesus christ is within us it's to be reflected by us and yet so often the problem is that we want to conceal that light we become timid rather than bold in shining and sharing the gospel we got too many secret service saints you know 
We say we love Jesus. We even have a Jesus saves pen, but we wear it on our undershirt where nobody can see it. We want to somehow slip incognito in and out of things in society. And Jesus is saying, look, you, you don't hide that light. You place it on a candlestick so that all can see. It gives light to all that are in the house. A little boy asked his father, Dad, how tall do you think I am? The father said, I don't know, son. Maybe four and a half feet tall. The little boy thought for a minute. Hey, Dad, how tall do you think Jesus was? I don't know, son. Maybe six feet tall. Got quiet in the car. The little boy thought for a little longer. Hey, Dad? Yeah? If I'm four and a half feet tall, and Jesus is six feet tall, and Jesus lives in me, he's going to stick out, isn't he? <laughs> you know what? That's exactly what ought to happen. If Jesus lives in us, he ought to stick out. As a believer, Paul would say, it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Can I ask you tonight, is Christ in you? There's some that will try to tell you when you ask them if they've been saved. Well, I've always been saved. You know, if I ask you your birthday, you wouldn't tell me I, I've, I've always been here. No, there's a point in time when you got born physically. Just as there's a point in time when you get born spiritually, you get born again. When you get born again, the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence within your very heart and life. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The old Gatorade commercial used to say, is it in you? Better question, is He in you? Have you been saved by the power of God? Is Christ in your heart and in your life? If you don't know that for certain, you can know it tonight. You can be born into the family of God by receiving Christ as your Savior. He said, men don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. They don't put it, they put it on a candlestick. He says in verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In verse 14 he says, you're the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, cannot be hid. He wants us not only to shine brightly, but He wants us to stand boldly. Like a city that's on a hill that cannot be hid. When the lights come on in the city, and you fly over top of Indianapolis, you can tell. Darkness, darkness, look at all the light down there. It cannot be hid. You know this word set, a city that is set on a hill, literally means to be providentially placed. To be set by God's intention, by appointed by God. You say, what's that have to do with me? Did you know as a Christian that you've been placed purposefully and intentionally by God in that family? In that job? In that neighborhood? On that ball team? In that school? In this community? Why? To shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so often we love to hang around other believers, and that's a wonderful thing to do, to enjoy the fellowship and the bond that we have in Christ. And yet when we leave here, it seems like we want to hide and not allow anybody else to know that we belong to the Savior. I wonder sometimes if the church has become the bushel that we hide under. We come and shine brightly in this place, and then we leave, and we get to the workplace... And we don't even want anybody to know that we go to church or that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We even try to hide and figure out some way to say a prayer over our meal that nobody even notices. Friend, you've been purposefully and publicly placed there by Almighty God so that you can shine brightly and stand boldly for the glory of God. I read that the Susan B. Anthony dollar 
was coined and minted for only three years here in the state, 79, 80, and 81. They've got some value to them, but it was considered one of the most unpopular coins in America's history. Say why? People thought it looked way too much like a quarter. Hard to distinguish between a quarter and a Susan B. Anthony dollar coin. The public thought a quarter ought to look like a quarter and a dollar ought to look like a dollar. You know, as a Christian, too many of us that are worth the dollar because of what Christ has done in our life want to blend in with a common quarter. When God says there ought to be a distinction, there ought to be a difference that is there, oh, the little children's song says, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, don't conceal the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Shine it brightly. Share it boldly. God intends kingdom citizens, you and me as believers, to rightly influence the society around us as salt and light for the glory of God. You say, but you don't know all the opposition I face. You don't know how dark it is in, in the workaday world. You don't understand all that I am opposed with in my family. You know, the good news is this. The darker the night, the brighter the light. Friend, what an opportunity we have to be what God has called us to be, salt and light as salt. We're to avoid being corrupted and polluted by the world around us because that renders us worthless. As light, we're not to conceal that, but rather we're to stand boldly and shine brightly. As salt, we're to restrain corruption by righteous living. As light, we're to reflect Christ through our words and our deeds that others might be attracted not just to ourselves, but to the one who's given himself for us. So that Jesus could announce, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. May God help us to be what he's called us to be. The salt of the earth and the light of the world.